It's September 16th, 2021, and you're listening to the Architecture Geeks podcast. I'm Larry. I'm Matthew. And we're your friendly neighborhood architects being geeky as we want to be. Well, hello again, everyone. It feels like it's been a, a long, long time, although I guess technically it really hasn't. But holy crap, we are in the middle of September. And I'm like, wait, 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 what? <laughs> I swear it was just summer like 10 seconds ago. I, 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 I don't know what to do. I don't know what to think. It's like the year's going by really, really too fast. Yeah, we we started to notice it a little bit when we did our weekend pool trip this weekend, and yeah, water was just a little bit. It, it was still tolerable, but it was it was definitely on the the cold side of tolerable for this time of year. <laughs> was it like the kids turning blue kind of thing? Uh, we definitely weren't in there for as long as as we would have if it was the height of August. That's for sure. <laughs> Yeah, we when we used to play uh, water volleyball in the summers, that was when we knew it was time to get out of the pool because it was September and you get in, you're like, wow, this is really a lot colder. <laughs> and we're like, yeah, we're not going to stay in here very long. One, one of the guys, one of the, one of the guys that was playing tiny, I mean, like five, two, the skinny little kid, you looked at him like, you have to get out of the water you're turning blue. I mean, it was just, it was just absolutely crazy, but yeah, it's, it's getting to be that time and, and labor day's gone. What did you guys get up to for labor day? Oh, we were, well, our standard trying to make sure the kids don't destroy the house and, but nothing, nothing special. We just hung around the house. I was actually in charge of the kids on Monday because Faye was working uh, on Labor Day. She uh, had some tight deadlines that they had to meet. And so they I was actually in charge of pretty much everything. Um, so it was me and the kids while Faye was working in the other room. And and you actually survived. So that's a that's a pretty good, pretty good sign, I suppose. I mean, what, they're two and a, a little over two and a half. So which again is hard to fathom, but if you can survive two and a half year old twins, you're probably doing pretty good. Well, we went off to Denver for basically a week and did nothing, which was fantastic. I worked every day in August, so not working for a week was was really pretty good. So I, I had no complaints there. But of course, we are back into the fall and back into our podcast schedule. So. I suppose we should get get rocking and rolling with with this week's podcast so we can get you guys done and gone, I suppose. So this this podcast or this this episode, we're actually gonna be talking about something that's been in the news lately. Well, we've been hearing about an uneven economic recovery as the pandemic really finishes up its its second year. You've got car prices that are through the roof housing stock is at rock bottom and inflation really has kind of picked up for the first time in almost 30 years. And and speaking of inflation, these periods of inflation have have tended to put people on high alert for rising prices. But I I recently read an article that flipped the concept of inflation on its head. Instead of inflation we should all be really watching out for shrinkflation. And, and here's why. In, in economic terms, 
shrinkflation is where people are price sensitive. For example, the average person will notice or, or complain about the price of a box of cereal going up, but that same person isn't going to notice when the box of cereal they are buying weighs 20% less, but they still pay the same amount of money for it. So in uncertain or unstable economic times, guess what happens? <laughs> Large companies like General Mills, the owner of cereal brands like Cheerios and, and Cocoa Puffs, have decreased the size of their cereal boxes while keeping the price the same. And, and this downsizing isn't limited to food, though. And that was another thing I found really interesting. Even toilet paper manufacturers such as Charmin have decreased the size of a single sheet of toilet paper to cut costs. It's a pretty crappy deal, eh? <laughs> but, um, uh, yeah, I know, right? <laughs> and, and, and the funny thing about that is that after being called out for it, Charmin acknowledged the discrepancy and, and tried to spin it as a more efficient way to wipe. You have to give them credit for, for trying that tactic, I suppose. But I'm like, a more efficient way to wipe, meaning you've given me a, a smaller piece of toilet paper and basically wished me good luck. I, I don't think that's really how that's supposed to work. But I, I guess, um, yeah, imagine that. <laughs> now I'm going to have to check my toilet paper when I, next time I go to the bathroom. Got me very curious there. But what what we thought we we thought well okay we're not going to spend the podcast talking about toilet paper because ooh ah and this is the architecture geeks so we what we thought we'd do is we we would be interesting to kind of track shrinkflation through sort of that architecture perspective and and trace how it has affected housing and local architecture over the last six years. The first clear example of shrinkflation in housing is this is especially around Dallas that we could really see was the switch from the pier and beam foundation to a slab on grade foundation. The soils here in North Texas, if, you, if you're a listener and you live here, you know exactly what we're talking about. They're notoriously bad. And as a result, the first spec home neighborhoods popping up around Dallas all had pier and beam foundations. And, and these are projects that I've worked on, uh, neighborhoods all over Dallas, where these houses had been built with pier and beam foundations. And of course, that sort of falls for us under this list of best practices when you're building in this area. It help, really helps stabilize the foundation. But developers found that there could be bigger profit margins by gradually transitioning from pier and beam to slab on grade sometime in the late 1950s. And that transition also happened to coincide with back-to-back -back recessions in the late 1950s and early 1960s. So by 1970, it was getting really rare to see new houses being built here with a pier and beam foundation, even though for us, at least for architects, it's a better building method because you get a much more stable foundation. And one of the, the interesting things for me about this is when I looked this up, the National Association of Home Builders said that average cost of a project, the foundation accounts for about 11% of the construction cost. So think about it. If I can build a cheaper foundation, if I can, as a builder, use less material, easier labor to make it, you know, to put it together. And I, it can go much faster because I'm not drilling a bunch of piers. How much of that 11% is my actual profit? I mean, how much money am I actually making in that foundation? So the shrinkflation notion of, you know, reducing what's in the house or reducing what's what you're doing in the house 
really, I think, is very much tied to that notion of, you know, what's my profit margin? You know, what can I give you for less? And and even though construction material costs are going up, I can still make more money. So it's that kind of a weird, weird dynamic. And a, and a random side note that, that kind of frustrated me is once this type of shrinkflation happens, there, there's really no going back. Things get set in place during hard times that that can very quickly become the new normal unless drastic measures are taken to jolt out of those post-recession ruts. Yeah, and I, th- I think again back to the foundation. I think that's very true. The we we recommend that you know Pyramid Beam Foundation, but you just don't see it. And I think that's that's true. We've gotten into this habit of building this way because we know it's economical. We know it's it's can be done quickly. And so we tend to get stuck into that rut and just kind of keep moving forward the same way. Yeah. The the second big change, change that I really noticed around here came during the dot-com bust in, in 2000. This one is slightly less obvious from an indiv- individual homeowner perspective because it occurred at the neighborhood level. But if you zoom out and look at the majority of new residential neighborhoods built just after this crash, they all followed the singular trend of removing the back alley from all streets. Why build two streets serving one house when functionally you could just rely on the, the main front street? And, and that this is another case of it, it allowed developers to squeeze that much more out of the their land and retain a certain amount of profitability during uncertain times. Well, I have to say that that, that was something that really surprised me because I, I, you know, my thought was, oh, look, they got rid of alleyways. We can have more, more yard. It didn't occur to me that we get rid of alleyways. We actually have more property to sell. <laughs> I, I don't know why I didn't put those two things together. Yeah. And, and, the most recent measure of shrinkflation came during the the Great Recession, and and this one to me is probably the most creative one in my opinion, and and it's zero lot houses, which on the face of it it makes a certain amount of sense, you know. And zero lot, so some back history: zero lot houses are houses that have been built right up to the property line, which is really only legal if you follow certain building code restrictions and developers are building significantly more zero lot houses than they used to, which is, again, you're just squeezing even more out of the land you have and you're losing your backyard now because now not only do you not have an alley, but now they chopped out pretty much most of your backyard and most of your front yard. (laughs) And side yard too, or do, do you still get a side yard? Uh, I think that qualifies as the backyard in a lot of cases. Well, that's just nuts. I mean, I, I don't know that I've ever really paid attention to that. But and, and to be clear, we're not criticizing the idea of zero-lot neighborhoods. They certainly have their own place in new home construction, and they're sort of a special niche in the housing market. But when this type of neighborhood is used clearly for the sole purpose of maximizing profits in the high-end housing market – where let's be let's be honest, folks. There's already a really decent profit to be made in the high end housing market. That's when this the whole shrinkflation stuff, I guess, starts getting out of hand, and it hits you twice with this type of construction, which is why we're talking about it being probably the most creative. 
and and the first the first thing to hit you is obvious that higher density equals more money for developers. And again, we're not not against density; it's just how it's being used. The second, though, is a lot more subtle: less windows and less operable windows for fresh air. Can you imagine that? Building zero lot housing inherently forces the buildings to have fewer windows for fire concerns. But windows are actually a pretty expensive part of a home's construction. So what better way to cut costs than to adopt a housing style that specifically limits windows due to fire code restrictions? And and so there's sort of this double dose of your money buying less than it used to. I don't think windows really get enough credit. And that, that's that's why we, we kind of paid special attention to it here, because with everybody being trapped at home during the pandemic, especially I would, I set up my desk to face the best view that we had outside of our house. And so the the windows became incredibly important as a way of, of, you know, connecting with the outside, even though we're all supposed to be staying inside. And so if you're just getting cut down on, on not only windows, but operable windows for fresh air, which could also be important in a pandemic if you need uh, more circulation going through a building, you know that I, I, I'm kind of having a hard time seeing where that trade-off and and value really come at the cost of more money to a developer who really doesn't give. He doesn't really give a flip about about what you're. I mean, he obviously cares about what you're paying. But he doesn't care 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 anything about your windows or how you're your view is. And I, and I get that too, because my desk is sitting in front of a window. To me, that's very important. But you also, on the other hand, I mean, you also worked or have worked, I don't know you're currently working, but in the past you've worked on a lot of these townhomes. And so you've seen this up close and personal. Oh yeah. Townhome developers. And, and again, this goes back to a, a density argument. We're not against density. I I'm all for a more dense neighborhood, especially when it's designed correctly. But townhome developers just go straight for how many walls and how few windows can we put in there so that it costs us less. And it just got it, it gets kind of frustrating <laughs> when you when you go in uh, into a into a developer meeting and they're like, all right, how are we going to cut costs? And then and then half of your windows get get either value engineered out or well, yeah, that, that's pretty much ends of what happens most of the time, but, <laughs> well, I won't say value engineer, value engineered out. I would think that they're just getting eliminated altogether. I mean, there's, there's no, there's no value in doing that, at least to the homeowner, but it's interesting. You know, it's, it does take us back to this idea of shrinkflation that you are getting less, but you don't, you don't really notice that you're, you're, you're upset because the price of the house is costing more, but you don't realize what's you're missing or what's being taken away from you. Um, like just like the cereal box, you don't realize there's less cereal in it. You just know it costs more. So there's sort of that double, double whammy. But I thought, yeah, that's so interesting, interesting. And I honestly, I had never paid attention to shrinkflation. So when when you brought this topic up, I thought, well, okay, this is this is something something different but but yeah it, it all makes it all makes sense but now that we've listed our evidence of the impact on inflation on housings we want to know from you guys from from our listeners 
what have you noticed? How has the economy affected design choices in the housing around you? And and is there something that we missed in this discussion? Yeah. So we'll be we'll be on Instagram at Archgeeks Podcast, and I'll have something up there and let us know if we missed anything or or what else everybody else has seen. But I think that's where we're going to wrap it up for today. You can find us on our website at architecturegeeks.com or Larry, they can find you at at spotted dog arch on Instagram and Twitter, or you can always just email me Larry at spotted dog architecture.com. So thanks again to everyone for listening. Oh, and uh, thank you to Ryan in Germany for the lovely note you sent us about the last podcast. It was very appreciated. And we will talk to you guys here again in a couple of weeks. Bye. Bye.